Hey everyone, we have a great show for you lined up for today on a really important subject, forgiveness. What does the Bible teach about forgiveness? Is it optional or mandatory? Are Christians allowed to hold grudges? Do we only have to forgive if someone apologizes? Join in as we discuss four reasons why you should forgive. This is a really significant part of Christian living it's so easy to hold a grudge. It's so easy to allow ourselves to become bitter. It's so easy to hold on to something, even though it hurts us. And so here is now our conversation. Off script number 12, forgiveness. Welcome to Off Script where we explore what the Bible's subversive wisdom has to say about today's most pressing issues. Hello, welcome to Offscript. I'm Sean here with Dan and Rose, and today we are talking about forgiveness and what the Christian view of forgiveness is, how the Bible addresses this subject, and how this works out in our own lives. To begin, I want to define the word forgive just from the New Testament briefly here and it comes from the Greek word afiimi which is really fascinating because that word afiimi really means dismiss and it's even used of divorce in the sense of sending somebody away as far as how we think of forgiveness it means letting something go and it really conjures up this idea of releasing a debt that you're somebody owes you something and you're letting it go the way I let me just lay out what I understand and see what you guys how you guys interpret it what I understand about it is this is based on Mark 11:25 Jesus says whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses and what I get from that is basically two things one it's a command. Jesus commands us to forgive. So regardless of how our emotions feel about a person or some sort of wrong that occurred to us, if we're being commanded to forgive, then it's possible to let that go or to cancel the debt. And then the other thing I notice here is how Jesus connects it to God forgiving us, that he says, Forgive them so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then he says it the opposite way in Matthew, where he says, if you don't forgive them, then your Father will not forgive you. And so forgiveness is extremely important, not to say it's easy, but it's simple. It's letting something go or canceling a debt that somebody has, sending it away, mm -hmm. basically. So what, what do you guys think about it? Well, Mark eleven twenty five. it's also, it almost takes your, your own feelings and thoughts about whatever you need to forgive out of the equation incentivizes you to forgive so that your father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses uh, another thing i drew from it is it says uh whenever you stand praying it's a repeated action it's supposed to occur often you know whatever well not often but as, as as often as it's needed right um so i just looked up um, that word that you mentioned, Sean, that Greek word for forgiveness, looked at it in Blue Letter Bible and all the instances of it. And 
amazing how often it appears in Acts while the um, apostles are often being taken into custody and then released. That's the word oh, for yeah. that, to release sure. them, to really set them free. That puts a spin on forgiveness, um, a very strong spin on it to think of like really releasing someone almost like you would a criminal. That it's a command, that it's something that affects our relationship with God, I think is absolutely critical mm-hmm. because it takes it from the realm of optional or improved sanctification to the realm of you have to do this, period. So mm-hmm. the question is not should we forgive? The question is how can we forgive? What does forgiving someone mean? Does that mean that you're reconciled to them? Does that mean that, for example, if I steal Rose's laptop, I'd be a fool. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to take it to an antique dealer an old, or something? <laughs> Rude. <laughs> if, if I steal Rose's laptop and she says to me, Sean, if you don't pay me back my laptop, I'm going to uh, turn you into the police, right? And then I come back and I, I return her laptop. I've made restitution. Or let's say I, I sold it on Craigslist for $5. <laughs> I sold it on Craigslist and you know I had a moment of weakness or I needed money really bad. So and then she caught me and she says, "Well, Sean, I'm going to I'm going to turn you in or our relationship is through or whatever until you pay me back whatever she thinks the laptop is worth." And so let's say I pay her and in that case, I've made restitution. So she's not really forgiving me. She's just insisting on justice in that case. Mm. Now, if she forgives me, she lets it go. You know what I mean? She cancels the debt. I owe it to her. She let it go. And then the other possibility, other than restitution or forgiveness, is vengeance. She could steal my laptop and drop it off the roof of the church onto the parking lot and spray paint on the ground that's what you get, sucker. <laughs> and that would be vengeance, where she has just wronged me in the same way that I wronged her to teach me never to wrong her again. She's restored balance in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I think, the most uh, attractive option to any of us when we're wronged, right? Mm. <laughs> vengeance is just an opportunity for so much creativity, like the spray painting and everything. Yeah. But you bring up an interesting point. I mean, is forgiveness two-way? Does it, does it have to involve both parties? Uh, I think ideally it should in the best case scenario, but life is messy and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it it is one way to forgive somebody who either doesn't want your forgiveness or doesn't know that they wronged you or doesn't agree that they wronged you to forgive them anyway, even, even with those conditions present, you're not forgiving them necessarily for their sake. You're forgiving them for your sake. So you can move on and your heart can be, pure with God. I think forgiveness is a component of reconciliation. And when there's been an injury, you know, Sean steals my laptop. We both have basically a decision of how we're going to handle ourselves. I can forgive or not forgive. And then Sean can repent or not repent. And for true reconciliation, I have to forgive and he has to repent. But reconciliation will not come unless both parties take those steps towards each other and towards restoring the relationship. Yeah, I want to come back to that restoring the relationship, that reconciliation aspect in a minute here. But let's just run through a hypothetical other than the the laptop one. Let's say that I lie to Dan here and he asked me a question 
about where I was and I make up a story about how I was working and that's why I couldn't come <laughs> do what he wanted to do and play volleyball. <laughs> and then he found out later on that I lied to him. Okay. So this is another kind of a mundane, but a simple little hypothetical. So in that case, what should both parties do? I think it's largely the same. You can still apologize you know, and repent. He can still forgive. Mm-hmm. There's not the element of restitution there um, that there would be potentially with you know, material theft. Mm-hmm. But I think both parties can still take those steps towards reconciliation. Yeah. Interpersonal relationships like you and I, I would probably confront you about it just, just to get any weirdness out of the way so we can move on. You know? But if I didn't know you well or I felt like awkward about it, then maybe I wouldn't say anything and it would be on you to sort of confess that to me. In a case where the perpetrator is not sorry mm. and doesn't ask for forgiveness and doesn't apologize because let's say they see it differently or maybe they're just a creep. Yeah. And in that case, should you still forgive? Yeah. I mean, you have to get it out of your heart because holding something against somebody, it's going to negatively impact you. Why would you, why would you hold on to it? Why would you and I'm saying this like it's so easy. It's not. But mm-hmm. to work towards forgiving a person who doesn't want forgiveness, that's probably the hardest time to forgive somebody. And that's when you need to do it the most, likely. I do think in your heart you have to work through it, even if that's on a psychological or, or spiritual level. Uh, you do need to let it go in a sense. But I also think it's important to communicate to the other person where you're at and that restoration is important to you. Because they could go on thinking that they're dead to you. But I think it's important for you to take the step in the middle. And I think it's okay to put yourself in a position so they can't harm you again. I think it's okay to protect yourself, you know, in a way that's not offensive to that person, unnecessarily offensive to them. But I think it's a good thing to make that gesture. In Second Corinthians 2, they're dealing with someone who has been in sin and has gone away from the church fellowship. And Paul encourages the community um, that this guy has um, been in so much sorrow to really go pursue him and bring him back. So it's not just um, an act of passive forgiveness, but he's act- asking them to take an act of active forgiveness and actually pursue, actively pursue a relationship with this man and restoring him in their community again. Forgiveness can be even more active uh, than we necessarily would expect it to be. I once heard a good quote about this from Bob Matheson, and I don't know if he invented it or not, but... He said, unforgiveness is the poison you drink thinking it's going to hurt someone else. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that it's, we use it as a weapon to punish other people because we feel like if we let it go, it's equivalent to saying it's okay and it's not okay. Or it's equivalent to saying what they did wasn't wrong. But if you think about it, forgiveness is precisely what you do when someone is wrong. Mm. In fact, if someone isn't wrong, you can't forgive them because they're not wrong. So it's basically saying, yeah, you were wrong and I'm choosing to let it go. What about this scenario where somebody does it again and then does it again and then does it again? Jesus is very clear about needing to forgive. That said, you have to take steps to protect yourself. If somebody uh, is borrowing money from you and doesn't pay back and then, and then ask to borrow more money and then ask to borrow more money at some point to protect your own financial well-being and, and you know, your own self-esteem and self-worth, you don't keep lending them money. I mean, 
Would you say you have forgiven them even if you're not going to lend them money? Sure. I believe that's possible. I mean, it goes back yeah. to this idea of forgive and forget. I think that applies in some situations. And in some situations, it's foolish to forget prior history with somebody or, or how you know that they act or that they, they think. I think also it's important to note if they're causing harm to other people, like say it was a child of yours or something. That's very important. You know, if someone is chronically doing this, very important to close off the avenue in which harm can be done in the future. And again, you can take that step towards reconciliation and forgiveness, but that doesn't mean you have to let yourself or someone else become a victim. I just looked up the phrase forgive and forget in the Bible, and I got zero matches. (laughs) I understand the sentiment of forgive and forget, which is you just let something go and you're not going to let it affect you anymore. And a lot of times that is good advice. But at the same time, that's not what Jesus commands us to do. He says to forgive. And people who advocate holding on to it unless somebody says they're sorry or saying that unless they repent, I'm not going to forgive them, usually will look at how God treats us in the sense that, well, we have plenty of scriptures that say that connect repentance with forgiveness in the sense of God. However, I think there's a big difference between how we treat each other and how our relationship is with God. Mm -hmm. And I say that because God is in charge of the universal justice system. And as a result, we find, this is Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. That's a good starting point, right? A good goal, strive for harmony. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That'll probably cut out like 90% of conflict right there. Right. And then, uh, <laughs> then he goes on to say, repay no one evil for evil. So if somebody does evil to you, we're not supposed to take vengeance. We're not supposed to drop their laptop off the church roof <laughs> onto the parking lot or uh, get creative in, in taking vengeance. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What I see here is that because, precisely because God has wrath, we're free from wrath ourselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it wasn't set up this way, we would have to take vengeance into our own, our own hands because we couldn't trust that the issue would ever be dealt with. Right. And just the way we're made, injustice bothers us. And so we have to do something with it. I don't think we just stuff it. Right. And, and I think a lot of people use unforgiveness as a, as a defense mechanism too. And they're not necessarily completely wrong in that because if you don't forgive somebody and you hold on to it, it's a very human, very natural thing to do. And people do that, I think, in many cases because they're afraid that if they let it go or if they, you know, forgive this person, then it's going to happen again. Right. They're putting themselves at risk, their right. emotional health. I wanted to sort of look at this from the other side. Uh, what if you are the one who did something wrong or a person thinks that you wronged them? What's our responsibility in, in that case? Louis C.K., the comic, has a funny little phrase that he says. When a person tells you that you hurt them, you don't get to decide that you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, there are many ways to look at a situation where one party feels aggrieved and the other party feels that they didn't do anything wrong. Right. 
the Christian's perspective, though, is not to, I wouldn't say to apologize when you, when you haven't done anything wrong, but, but to really, with a pure heart, go to that person and, and be proactive in, in fixing that relationship. Ask them you know, why they think this way. Tell them the way that you see the situation and don't ignore it. Especially in an instance where you're surprised that you harmed someone, because that happens to all of us, where someone took offense and we were like, oh man, I had no idea. I think it's important to apologize straight up, give them 100% of an apology, but I do think it's important to let them know that was not your intent. Not to justify yourself or, you know, try to fling it back at them at all, but certainly to let them know that was not your intent, that you've learned from it, and that going forward, you will use more tact in that kind of situation to avoid hurting them again. You remind me of this situation that arose where I was dealing with somebody on the phone, some company, and they had wronged me greatly. (laughs) And there was a woman who said, I'm sorry you feel upset. And I was just like, that's a non-apology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you're saying there's something wrong with me. That's such an insult. You're sorry that my emotions are are messed up. You're not sorry for what you did. That's you know such I mean? a cop out. Yeah. That's the worst thing you could say. Don't even say it's anything. It's like a second slap, really. Like. <laughs> yeah. right, right. So I think that is important. Obviously, first of all, you take responsibility. We've all been in this situation on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. But I think if you are the perpetrator, then you do need to take responsibility you need, for whatever happened, whether it's intentional or unintentional. You're still part of that situation. So take for responsibility for whatever part you had in that. And... A lot of times it's misunderstanding, which then it would be explaining what you did intend. But you should still feel empathy for somebody that's hurt, even if it wasn't your intention. Mm-hmm. Even just saying you're sorry to somebody. I mean, that's still a hugely healing thing to do in the moment. And then you work to make the repairs that are necessary. And when it comes to trust, trust often just takes time. Mm. You want to facilitate forgiveness and facilitate reconciliation so that both of you can move on and can love God with, you know, with a pure heart. I'm reminded of Matthew 18, where Jesus tells the story about the two guys who were forgiven and what he says there, because that's when Peter came up to Jesus and asked his big stumper question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And He suggests as many as seven times, right? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Then he tells a story about how there's this person, a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants, and he begins to settle, and somebody gets brought before him who owes 10,000 talents, which is just basically millions of dollars of some you could never repay. And his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But then the servant fell on his knees and begged him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, out of compassion, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But then that servant who was forgiven went out and found somebody that owed him 100 denarii, which is not even a year's wage, and seized him and began to choke him and said, pay what you owe. Right? And so that servant falls down and says the same thing. Oh, please be patient with me and I will repay you. And he won't. He won't give him an inch. He won't release him from that debt, even though he he was released from a debt that was far greater. Puts this person in prison until he can pay the debt. And then the other servants see what happened, and they're so upset and distressed by it that they go to the king in the first place and tell him what happened. And he grabs the servant and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
and in anger his master delivered him to jailers until he should pay all his debt. Then Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so this ties into Ephesians 4.32 as well, which says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The basis for why we forgive others is because in Christ God has forgiven us, and what he's forgiven us is much greater Mm. than whatever anyone else can do to us because he forgave us of all our sins when we had no moral ground to stand on. For us as believers, we look at this and we look at the magnitude of the atonement that was accomplished for us on the cross, even though it is not easy to forgive when we are hurt. We have that enormous precedent that then enables us to go and and give it forward. Yeah. And it's not like it didn't cost God anything to forgive us. Mm. It cost him dearly. It reminds me of the incident that happened back in 2006. A man named Charlie, who was a milk delivery driver, truck driver, walked into an Amish schoolhouse And he walked in and he dismissed a whole bunch of the boys and the teacher and kept captive 10 of these schoolgirls. And as soon as the teacher was out of the room, of course, she called the police. So the police came within nine minutes of that occurring so that they surrounded the property. The end result of the story is that he ended up executing five of these girls and some some of the others i think were injured as well basically shooting them in the head and then he shot himself and i mean that's obviously that's just such a horrifying nightmare of a tragedy i mean here's a guy who was part of this community he wasn't amish himself but he did attack this amish schoolhouse what is so unusual about this incident is the amish response What happens is within hours of the shooting, the Amish begin to practice forgiveness, a kind of instant forgiveness that totally stunned the outside world. The families who were affected in the Amish community in general, they decided to show forgiveness to the widow, this guy was married, and to his parents who his father had been a policeman in that area as well. The mother of the perpetrator here, whose name is Terry Roberts, and her initial reaction, I mean, of course, she's totally shocked that her 32-year-old son has done this. She has not seen this coming at all. She concludes to herself that she's going to have to leave. I mean, there's no way she can stay in this town. The victim's family ended up going to her house and to the man's house, to the wife, and expressing forgiveness to them. In fact, when it came time for the funeral, they came, they brought food. There was even one father who had lost two daughters to the son, and they were one of the first ones to come. They they attended the guy's funeral. I mean, it's just mind-boggling that you would do that. I mean, here's somebody that is is a moral monster, has murdered your children, Mm. and you go to his funeral, and they didn't go to the funeral to heckle or hold up signs saying Mm -hmm. death to all the American outsiders. I don't know what kind of an Amish hate speech would even look like. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, they came and they expressed genuine concern for this woman whose husband just did this horrible thing, for his children, for the, the mother, for the father. And 
that right there, I think a lot of people would say is emotionally unhealthy or somehow insane. But the deepness of this act is that this initiated a healing process for these people. I mean, you can't, you can't get your children back. Yeah. This guy is already dead anyhow. What it ended up doing was showing the world the beauty of radical forgiveness. And it really take, took the world by storm. Mm-hmm. I've just been digging into the story a little bit here, but a lot of people have questioned, well, what are, what are his motives? And on the Wikipedia page, it mentions that he had left four suicide notes for his wife. And that the reason behind why he did this is that he contacted his wife while he was still in the schoolhouse before he killed anybody or killed himself and said that he had molested two younger relatives about 20 years ago. That thought of how he had molested them was tormenting him and that he felt like he was going to do it again. And I mean, you see what he did. He went to a schoolhouse, he dismissed the adults and the boys and he kept the girls there. So I mean... There was obviously something going on. I'm no psychologist, but it seems like what motivated this man was an inability for him to forgive himself for what he had done 20 years earlier. So that unforgiveness in him somehow festered into this insane act of grotesque violence, and that in any kind of normal circumstance would have then resulted in much more unforgiveness by many more people. Mm. And instead, because of this Christian ethic the Amish hold to, to, the, to their dying breath, they put an end to that evil. They were like Jesus on the cross there. I mean, maybe that's saying it too much, but they absorbed the evil and it stopped with them. It was just put an end to right, it. Right, because unforgiveness is, is viral. I mean, it, you can yeah. catch it and it can affect you. The mother of the gunman ended up getting involved with one of the girls that was seriously wounded, who she cares for now. Wow. And she participates in that recovery process. And, and then, again, this is not an internal Amish situation. These people are not Amish, and yet the Amish are treating them with this incredible forgiveness. And you also see that outside oh, yeah. the Amish. In the Charleston church shoot, shooting, uh, Dylan Roof went into a prayer meeting and killed nine people. And at his bond hearing, uh, the relatives of those slain, a lot of them told him that they forgive him. In these extreme cases, what we see is a willingness to release a debt even when that person might not feel bad for or they might not ask for forgiveness, and yet there's still a radical or a a zeal for forgiveness. Now, at the same time, none of us is going to say that this person shouldn't go to jail had he survived. Right. The Amish wouldn't say that either because, look, first of all, the government is here, according to Romans 13, to punish evildoers. There is a justice, hopefully more often than not, where people that do a crime do do the time or they do suffer a fine or whatever. We wouldn't say you should just let somebody off the hook in the sense of not having them face the justice system. But in your own heart, you're releasing it. So I don't know how to really describe that nuance a little bit we're talking about this idea of forgiveness for the good of everybody so that people can move on so that it doesn't spread uh there's a story of a man who killed his girlfriend and uh i'll just read an excerpt from a new york times magazine story the man in the situation is connor and this is a true story his girlfriend is named Anne. 
When Connor was booked, he was told to give the names of five people who would be permitted to visit him in jail, and he put Anne's mother, Kate, on the list. Connor says he doesn't know why he did so. I was in a state of shock, he said. But knowing she could visit put a burden on Kate. At first, she didn't want to see him at all, but that feeling turned to willingness and then to a need. This is Kate speaking. Before this happened, I loved Connor, she says. I knew that if I defined Connor by that one moment as a murderer, I was defining my daughter as a murder victim, and I could not allow that to happen. She asked her husband if he had a message for Connor. Tell him I love him and I forgive him, he answered. Kate told the reporter, uh, I wanted to be able to give him the same message. Connor owed us a debt he could never repay, and releasing him from that debt would release us from expecting that anything in this world could satisfy us. Excellent there. I mean, that's really exactly what we've been saying, isn't it? The whole idea of a debt being released. And here, in this case, you see that there is forgiveness first preceding any kind of acknowledgement of guilt or sorrow or repentance by that person because she has to forgive even to ever go visit. Mm. Because if she's there and she hasn't forgiven him, the emotions, the trauma, the rage would just be overwhelming. She could never do it, right? right? And so that's what we see with Jesus. That's what we see with Stephen. That's what we see as a legacy of Christians throughout time, especially in the persecutions where they pray. And the the Amish as well, they, they have a history going back 500 years here to the Anabaptists of the uh, Radical Reformation. They pray for their torturers. They pray for those who are executing them, that God would forgive them, that God would not lay it to their charge. And let me tell you something. That is a much more beautiful way to die than with bitterness in your heart. Mm. Obviously, the best would be not to die at all from such injustice. But if you are going to face injustice, I think the Christian path of forgiveness is courageous it's not weak oh totally yeah it takes more courage to forgive somebody in many cases than it does to hold on to people love being aggrieved i mean we live in an age of outrage and Mm. people love taking offense people love to have you know their axe to grind and and we've all done it you know i've I've certainly done it like have conversations in your head you know about why you're right (laughs) you know like (laughs) but to let that go you know that that takes work first of all it's a very courageous act. Who's that historian, Sean, that uh, was actually critical of the Christians, but mentioned how they would uh, love their enemies and pray for the people that persecuted them? I think you're talking about the Epistle of Diognetus here. Yes, is, that's the one. Which is from either the second or the third century. And I'll just read from it a little quotation. This is chapter six. They live in their own countries but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland. Every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children. This is talking about Christians. But they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. And he goes on, They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility." So this is a a testimony of how Christians, how people thought about Christians in the early centuries of the movement, that we were those who 
forgave. We were those who return a blessing for a curse. Those who still chose to honor those who were persecuting them, even if you couldn't, even if we couldn't go along with the system of the age that required idolatry and allegiance to Caesar, we still would respectfully suffer in those situations. And through that suffering, Christianity spread like wildfire among the masses as they saw how our people died, how our people clung to the faith in the face of incredible suffering and incredible torture and martyrdom. So this is part of the DNA of the body of Christ. It's part of the legacy of our people that goes back eons. Think about Joseph in Egypt. I mean, his brother mm-hmm. sold him into slavery, and he meets up with them years later and forgives them. They thought he, that he would execute them or something, you know? Oh, yeah. In fact, when they had been living there for over a decade, their father died, Jacob. The brothers came to Joseph at that point and said, are you going to carry out your wishes on us now? Are you going to arrest us? Are you going right. to kill us? Because... We're really nervous. One of the questions I would like to ask is, how do you work your mind around to forgiveness if you're in a situation where you've been wronged and you're arguing with yourself and you're like, I, sh- I can't believe they said that to me. I should have said this. How dare they? Do they know who I am? And all the other kinds of ideas that go through your head. What do you do, practically speaking, to work your mind around to a place of releasing it, letting it go? I think it's important not to fake it, and I think it's important to take your time and process through natural emotions. And you're going to feel anger, um, and you're going to feel grief. And through this time, you, you do have to process it, and you do have to kind of reach a, you reach a final conclusion in your mind after something happens. You have to make sure that your final conclusion is truth, and that it is not twisted around to make more of a villain out of the person than you really should. But you reach a final conclusion. And it's important that through that, you're opening yourself up to God, basically allowing him to help you reach the right conclusion. There comes a point when you have to stop dwelling on it. Throughout this, you shouldn't be dwelling solely on the offense. You should be looking up to God as well. But there comes a point where you have to close the box on it and you have to 100% lean into God um, because the healing comes in him, all the goodness is in him, everything desirable is in him and to be opening the box again you're only going to hurt yourself so there comes a point when you have to put the lid on when you have dealt with it well and when god has helped you through your grief and then the time comes uh, to open yourself up completely to god and seek the growth and the transformation that can come even as a result of the healing process yeah i think i'd like to push back against what you just said a little bit on the basis of this amish example i would say that they definitely did not have time to work through their anger and their sense of loss Mm -hmm. before they showed forgiveness or practiced forgiveness. You can begin the actions of forgiveness even before you are able to settle it in your own heart. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and I think those two ideas can coexist. I mean... Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not like, well, some of these I'm going to hold on to and other ones I'm... Like, we're going to let it all Mm -hmm. go. Because Jesus commands to forgive or else the Father's not going to forgive us. So that, like, that's going to happen. The question is like, well, how can I work my heart around to that? But while mm-hmm. I'm working on that, in the meantime, I can make these folks dinner because they're suffering and they're going through something and they probably are hungry yes. right now. The actions of forgiveness, even if your heart doesn't feel 100% synced up, it pulls your heart along. Um, and I think it helps you, you know, end your grief and move on to healing. What the Amish did was a very public 
example of radical forgiveness and it had an amazing impact. It was a great, you know, we're talking about it now, 10 years mm-hmm. later. I don't think those Amish went home and that was it. Right. They and had to grieve. They had their own stuff to work out in their hearts and they're probably still doing it. I mean, you don't get over the death of your daughter ever, I would mm-hmm. imagine. <laughs> Yes. So, and going back to what you said earlier, Sean, about the believers who are suffering then, and even in my own experience in grief and and being wronged, people are looking at you, people in the Christian community and out of the Christian community, and they're mostly checking up to see how you're doing. It's a huge opportunity to suffer well and to glorify God. The Amish like seized that opportunity in that instance, even when, you know, I'm sure nobody expected them to show up and reach out in the way that they did. They seized that opportunity. You have a microphone in your hand when you're going through suffering like that and people are watching you. And um, not only do you have the obligation really uh, to extend the forgiveness that Christ has shown you, but I do think however possible that you look at this as an opportunity to give glory to the one who showed that much forgiveness to you. That's fascinating. By going through suffering, it enfranchises you. It almost like gives you credibility. Yeah. So that what you say, people take what you say more seriously than mm-hmm. if you're if you're not. And what I think is interesting too about the Amish example along the same lines is that the Amish are not a showy group of people. They they could basically care less what the world thinks about them. I mean, mm-hmm. as evidenced by their various fashion style and, and whatnot. But I was going to say, uh, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) By their lack of mustaches. Um, No, I probably will edit that out. The Amish are generally not concerned with what outsiders think. I think they were just being consistent and quietly going about their protocol for how to behave in a situation where they've been wronged. They know they're supposed to forgive. Probably none of them imagined this would be the extent of it. But they're just trying to be consistent, and the world kind of jumped in and saw the beauty of it. Yeah. I don't think they were really trying to use it to like publicize, and that's why you should become Amish, mm-hmm. like right. us. And it probably didn't strike them as odd, right? To it's just another for us, it's radical forgiveness. Yeah. For them, it's well, yes, obviously we would do this. Why wouldn't we? If listening to this, you don't have enough reasons to to forgive, uh, I'll give you a secular reason from WebMD. It says, if you can bring yourself to forgive and forget, you are likely to enjoy lower blood pressure, a stronger immune system, and a drop in the stress hormones circulating in your blood, studies suggest. Back pain, stomach problems, and headaches may disappear, and you'll reduce the anger, bitterness, resentment, depression, and other negative emotions that accompany the failure to forgive. So there you go. Right. So reason to forgive number one (laughs) is that if you don't, God won't forgive you. That's a very powerful reason. (laughs) Yes. Reason number two is... We've been forgiven so much, so we don't want to be like that mid-level servant who then is stingy with the people underneath us, even though we've been shown such generosity. And then reason number three is our testimony to the world, the fact that we are holding a mic when we go through suffering, and people do pay attention to how how we handle that situation. And there's a real opportunity for testimony, whether we're talking about ancient Christians or modern tragedy. And then... Last but not least, the uh, (laughs) benefits of health and the psychosomatic aspect of forgiveness and unforgiveness. Well, that's all we have time for today. And as always, thanks for listening, and please leave us comments online. Today, just before doing the podcast, actually, I met one of our listeners, Brian Allen from Vermont, and he figured I liked uh, to say goodbye in different languages, so he taught me a new one, and this is kind of like see you later in Hebrew. Is that what it is? All right, so that's what it is. 
and it is La Hydraute. Have a good week, everyone. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.